You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, friends. Hey, let me get right to it today. I've just got a delightful guest. It's somebody that I haven't spent nearly enough time with, but when I do, I just always want to spend more time. Mandy Smith. Mandy's a fellow Aussie. She's like a sister to me. Um, and, and there is something that happens when Aussies get together, especially expat Aussies, which Mandy and I both were uh, living in the States for so long. Mm. Just this shorthand and this this feeling of homesickness. So many of you know Mandy because of her work with Missio Alliance. She's a pastor and author. A couple of years ago, Mandy wrote a book called The Vulnerable Pastor that was just amazing, where she opened up about how to use vulnerability in ministry as not as a tool, but just as a way of being. And uh, Mandy's most recent book is Unfettered. I've got it right here in front of me. Imagining a childlike faith beyond the baggage of Western culture. And I had the great privilege of getting an early copy of the book. Um, Mandy was kind enough to ask me to endorse it. And what I said about Mandy, Mandy, I, I guess I'll just say it to you, is, is Mandy is a pastor artist, uh, as well as a theologian, but we just don't have enough imaginative pastors nowadays. And that's what I think of when I think of you, Mandy. So welcome again to the MLA podcast. Mm, wow, what an introduction. It's so good to be with you. And the feelings mutual. I really enjoy hanging out with you two and wish we could do it in person. Well, you and Jamie, you, your husband, you've made it harder because you moved back home I since know. last time we chatted. Yeah, sorry about that. We weren't moving in the direction <laughs> of being together. So, yeah, we are now in Brisbane, Australia. So not something I would recommend doing during a global pandemic to move internationally, but um, we we did it and now we're here. So now we've just got to get you back here. Yeah, which I'm working on uh, actively for sure. Yeah, Mandy, you're a pastor. Jamie, your husband's a theologian. Mm -hmm. You spent many years ministering and and teaching in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, I know when I go home, obviously I'm from Perth, it's such a surreal experience to be back in the place of my childhood. Mm. What's it like for you being back in Queensland? Yeah, it's very strange. There's, I want to have a word for the opposite of grief. As much as we are grieving the, the things that we've left behind in the U.S., including our daughter and so many friends, but we've also gained some things, and some of them are things that I had forgotten I'd lost because I left here so long ago. And there'll be a moment where I'll just turn a corner and smell something that mm. I had forgotten, you know, and it might literally be something that I haven't smelled since I was 10. And it just, oh, I'm just flooded. Just the way that grief can kind of hit you with a smell or a sound, whatever this is, um, is like a, a getting something back suddenly that just takes you off guard as well. So I'm, I'm doing the grieving and the whatever the opposite of grieving is at the same time. Mm. It, is a, it is a rich experience. Some of my most powerful experiences when I first land in Perth is how noisy the birds are. Oh my goodness. We were just talking about this. We cannot sleep past 5.30 in the morning. And it's, and I literally the other night was thinking, oh, it was like 10.30 in the, in the night and I was going to bed and I was like, I seriously cannot be up this late anymore. And it was entirely because of the birds. Yeah. Yeah. They are and really a presence. It's delightful. It's this yeah. magical alive sound. There's so many different sounds happening at once that you, yeah. 
it's like listening to an orchestra where you can like choose to just listen to the oboes and then you can choose to listen to the horns or whatever like I do that with the birds sometimes and there's just so many timbres happening at the same time it's beautiful mm. but when you want to sleep sometimes not so much yeah yeah well you've passed it in the United States in the Midwest for many years mm -hmm. in our movement of churches I think you were the only female lead pastor if mm -hmm. I remember right yep. there might have been one other yeah um you're now pastoring in the Uniting Churches in Australia, mm -hmm. a whole different movement. Yes. Um, tell us the difference. Like, what what yeah. are you noticing that you like, and what are you missing about American? It's interesting. Uh, church? Yeah. So the Uniting Church is a, a denomination that I don't think ever wanted to be a denomination, but it formed in the '70s as three different denominations merged, which is a beautiful story to think about: Methodist, Congregationalist, and Presbyterian churches in Australia choosing to become one. And there's a lot of different traditions and histories there. That, um, And so the language around that um, is just such an inspiring uh, vision of what it looks like to be together in difference, which I think is really um, one of my favorite things. I think that's where most of our really transform transformative moments come is when we are in the discomfort of being with others who claim Jesus and who, who we don't like very much <laughs> or who do we don't understand very much. And I think that's the place that where there's a similarity. You know, the Churches of Christ, Christian churches that I grew up in and that I ministered in in the U.S. Um, originally started as a unity movement too. I don't know if they always remember that, but, um, <laughs> but that was the goal. And, again, they didn't really uh, want to be a denomination either. And um, I think one of the biggest differences that I'm noticing between the two experiences is that the the church, Christian churches in the U.S. are independent, and in some ways that's one of the reasons why I kind of flew under the radar that while they don't generally ordain women for ministry, each congregation chooses its own leadership, and so my congregation chose me, and that's how I got to ordination instead of the top-down kind of denominational ordination process that a lot of people have. Um, but I can see very starkly the difference between having the denominational structure versus not. And there were some ways in which that, that Christian church context I was in, in a very independent congregation, it was, it was exciting because we could really choose for ourselves what we were going to be and we could turn and make changes quite simply. But at the same time, there wasn't any support. <laughs> there, you know, if, if we didn't have enough money, we closed. If we didn't have enough people, you know, it was like there was nothing past us that was a support structure. And um, so I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged here by the fact that I have so many peers in the denomination and so many folks from, from the presbytery and the synod who are providing resources and relationship and encouragement. And, um, and at the same time, it, it means things just take longer and uh, there, are, there are more procedures that I have to know about and, and adhere to. So there's, there's good and bad in, in both contexts, I guess. Yeah. One of the big surprises to me when I came to the United States was how closely aligned the kinds of churches I was familiar with was with uh, right-wing politics. Mm. And I, I'm pretty rusty on Australian Christianity. It's obviously been a long time, but I... When I left it in the 90s, it was more aligned with left-wing political leanings. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, why yeah, not I'm still just open a big old can of worms? Yeah, I'm still learning about that myself. Yeah. 
I do think that Australians in general just don't define themselves by their politics as much as Americans do. It's not, a yeah. good, you know, they care about it and they listen to the news and they have strong opinions, but it's not at the top. If they were going to list all the ways they define themselves as individuals or as as a church, that's, that's that would come somewhere further down the list than it does for Americans. And so um, it actually, I find that actually really refreshing because, and I think too, in some ways, there's um, there's a sense of it's a luxury when you're a smaller country or when your church is small. Uh, we don't have the luxury to divide over all the other, all the things. Um, you know, if if the churches that I grew up in here in Queensland were dividing over whether or not we speak in tongues and whether or not we ordain women and all the things that people usually divide over. Um, then we'd have a congregation here of three people and a congregation there of four people. And, you know, so it's just in a way it's a, I think sometimes a sign of privilege and wealth and power that we have the luxury to be separated over all the different things that we separate over in the U S. That's a fascinating way of saying it. There's a pastor in Texas named Luke Norsworthy and he, he's, he's saying, um, all these people leaving my church over their political affiliation, I wonder when they're going to leave their political affiliation for the church. Mm. And that does seem to be yeah. one of the challenges of American leadership, church yeah. leadership right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, it's only after being out of that context that I'm realizing how hard it became to preach in the U.S. because there are some ruts in in our thinking that I think have been shaped by kind of polarizing media that once you start talking about anything that sounds a bit like those ruts suddenly people are in those ruts and and if you want to if you want to talk about something that's a little bit like the conversation that's happening in the media but isn't isn't defined by that you have to spend so much time saying well I'm not saying this and I'm not saying this and I'm not saying that and it's exhausting um so yeah I do think that there's some um some serious uh spiritual warfare happening in American culture right now. And um, it, it, I pray for, for church leaders and Christians to navigate that faithfully and to find something that is beyond their allegiance to, to those worldly powers. Yeah. Let's dive into your book, Unfettered. Um, you know, as I said in the intro, I got to read it early and as I was reading it, Mandy, I just thought there's really no one else that could have written this book. Like this really is you. Mm. And um, I, I want to tackle a couple of things. I love how you talk about childlikeness versus childishness. Mm -hmm. And then the way you flip it and talk about adult likeness versus adultishness. Mm. I mm -hmm. thought that was really something. So maybe you could start by kicking around Childlike faith versus childish faith, and let's see where that goes. Yeah, so that's a distinction that we often make, and I think even Scripture makes that decision that the distinction that Paul said he talks about putting away childish things. Um, and so I I like to think of it in terms of um, how you see the prophets often respond when God comes to them and says. I have a calling for you. And they say, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, and Jeremiah literally says, I'm just a child. Don't ask me to do these things. And so I think it's really good for us to acknowledge that um, 
I would say childlikeness is being unafraid of our powerlessness and childishness is, um, is being afraid of our power. And so, um, we see with those stories of, of the prophets, there's a way in which this, they want to be in the safe place of not having any responsibility, not having any agency. And um, so I, I usually put it in terms of to, to step into childlikeness, we have to set aside our adultishness, which is our desire to always be in power, which is, you know, our, our fear of powerlessness. And um, from that place, we then come to a place of, of being called to, to say something, to do something, to respond, uh, which requires us to set aside our childishness, the fear of powerfulness, to embrace adult-likeness, which is, which is an, uh, being unafraid of our power. And so I think ultimately we are called to be childlike and adult-like, which is unafraid of the ways that we are powerless, acknowledging God's power, and unafraid of the ways that we do have power and agency, that God does call us, as limited as it might be, that God does say you have agency, you have a voice. Um, and so I think that's a beautiful vision to live towards, to both embrace um, and be unashamed of the ways we are not God, but also to be um, willing to join God in his mission in the world. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I really appreciated. The way you fleshed out the childlike faith, let the little children come to me and 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 so often stereotypically people talk about that being like a, a simple faith, but you really do talk about it through the lens of control mm. that a child in the Roman empire really had no power and no control. Um, is that the key of transformation is the lens of control? I think that's a big part of it. And um, it is surprising to me when I started exploring this, how little has been written about it. Even though Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. Like that's really clear. And there was one serious theological book that I could find that had actually explored that. Um, some other folks like C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald and um, G.K. Chesterton, who are, you know, kind of great imaginary imaginers, um, had explored some of it. But um, as far as theologians, there was only one who had actually explored it. And um, I think you're right that we often just assume it's like whimsy and wonder and jumping in puddles, which are wonderful things, but we also have to pay the bills, you know. So um, I do think that it's a really good opportunity for us to acknowledge that we are in a culture that that defines human beings in a very um, limited way and that actually does damage to our very selves because it carves off emotion, it carves off bodily experience and instinct and relational social stuff and basically defines us as thinking beings and functioning beings, product, you know, producing beings. And, you know, this is, this is growing out of the story of Descartes and I think therefore I am and, you know, this, this, this way of just defining ourselves as as thinkers, brains on legs, and then, you know, the Industrial Revolution sees us as kind of cogs in the machine. We're robots to function and get stuff done, and we see that in the pressure that we put on ourselves for productivity. And the funny thing is when I mention this, and I'm, I'm the same, this is, I'm, not, I'm not, not immune to this cultural reality that we've all been steeped in and educated in our whole lives. 
When I say this is a problem that we define ourselves by the I think therefore I am and I do therefore I am kinds of habits, uh, it's interesting because then I hear people say, this is true, we need to think about that so we can fix it. <laughs> like there's, there's a way that we're just, we need detox from even these habits of control. And the, the helpful, encouraging, wonderful thing is that we used to be good at this when we were children, even in a troubled childhood, there were ways that we were unashamed and unsurprised that we couldn't control everything. And there were ways that we were open to the world with our senses, with as whole beings, with senses and thoughts and emotions and feelings and intellect and and relational parts of ourselves. And so I think it really was about being comfortable being human. That's really what I think children teach us and that we knew when we were children and that we can return to again. Yeah, it's actually, I think the beautiful vision you're calling us to is an embodied mm -hmm. humanity. Mm -hmm. I, I love how, yeah, you say that we're brains on legs. It's, it's disturbingly true. One of your antidotes has been to become a rabid, unashamed dancer. <laughs> uh, tell us about that journey. I don't know about unashamed. That's the goal. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so many times when I'm just anxious, I or overwhelmed, you know, I'm a really deep feeler and I'm just always overwhelmed. And I find myself trying to fix it by just calming myself down by thinking certain things. And there are times when your body just needs to release something, you know. And so I uh, remember the Lord just kind of prompting me with this strange sentence, dance for the healing to come. And that has taken on so many layers as I, as I have danced out of obedience, which is a very awkward kind of dance, you know. <laughs> But after a while, if you, you know, there's, there's actually a real hesitation. There's a real kind of adultish, oh, you're too grown up for this. Oh, you'll look foolish. Oh, you'll feel dumb. Oh, you know, like even if you're just dancing in your pajamas by yourself at home, there's all these things in us that, that want to keep control and, and worry that we'll be disappointed or worry that we'll look foolish. And so much of that is this false self in us. Yeah. And so it was this tiny little snapshot of my whole life, really, of like, if I can't even jump around the room in my pajamas by myself without all of this baggage about body image and, and you know, my my need to please people and my need to feel in control. And like, it was actually a really great snapshot and a great opportunity. And I remember one particular moment in one song, dancing by myself in my pajamas at home and um, in the course of the one song, there was a moment where I just felt this, like I felt a little jiggling going on and, and there was this like shame about, about my body image. And then there was a moment where one of the moves might've looked a little bit suggestive and there was this like, oh, don't be that woman who's inappropriate, you know? And then there was this also moment where I was just kind of losing myself and feeling a little bit of joy bubbling up. And there was this sense of like, Oh, well, now you're, now you're that kind of childish person. Nobody's going to take you seriously as a, as a lead pastor because you're goofing around in the, in the lounge room by yourself. And I just, like, there was a spiritual warfare, I think, that was going on of like all these accusations of you need to look like this and you need to perform like this and you need to have this kind of, um, regard from other people before you can ever fulfill your calling. And, and it was just such a wake up moment where I just thought like, when my children were just jumping around in the lounge room by themselves when we were, when they were little, 
as a parent looking on them, there was no part of me that was like, oh, you know, that's a bit, there's a bit too much jiggling happening here. <laughs> or, or, you know, you need to like protect the way that you project yourself to the world or you need to be in control of yourself. And I don't think I was healed in that moment, but I was really aware of some places that God wanted to be doing some healing work in me. And so I think, I think actually, even as I'm talking about this, I probably need to be doing some more dancing this week too. Yeah, I, I think you probably do need to, Mandy, because I, th- I think as I'm listening to you as a man, listening to a woman talking about self-consciousness and body image and things like that, my immediate reaction is um, to agree with all the self-consciousness and dismiss all the body image. So I think I'm challenged listening to you to take seriously that we all have all of these same inhibitions. Mm-hmm. And what would it look like to be inhibited instead of inhibited? Mm-hmm. You know, like to be fully inhibited. Um, mm. It's really something. And I think this is what you're digging out with. A, I, I love the way you have taken the word adult and turned it into a negative, like the adultish. Mm. Like if we, if childish means something bad, then surely adultish mm-hmm. isn't good either. Yeah, it's and a false it is that, way. Yeah. It, it, what is that? It's earnestness. It's yeah, over responsibility. I use um, some caricatures that come from the book The Little Prince and it was only after I wrote my book that I realized I was using some books that are usually seen as children's books to illustrate my points. Um, and in The Little Prince there are these five or six different caricatures of of different men on, on little planets and they each have, they're the only person on their whole planet and they're each very important. And, and one of them is... Um, thinks he's very rich because he can count all the stars and put the number on a piece of paper and put it in a drawer. And and, and uh, there's one man who's a geographer who's too important to actually go and study any of the places, but he writes very big books about all the imp- all the places around the world. And um, and and they're all caricatures that uh, we can relate to, where it's usually related to to control and and a, a weight of responsibility, which actually makes us makes me really sad for us that um, we all feel this this sense of you know we there's something we're supposed to be doing with these lives with the resources and gifts that we have and and if there is no God then it's all up to us and if there is a God then it's our part to partner with that God and bring what we have to what he's already doing in the world um, and I think we often ping pong between it's all up to me and it's all up to God it feels very spiritual to say it's all up to God, but then we have to get out of bed and do something in the day. And so then we jump straight back into, oh, well, then it's all up to me. Yeah. And so we're just going back and forth constantly between those two things. But um, that's why in the book I, I talk about this habit we have, myself included, of respond, respond, respond. That Like there's a question, respond. There's a problem, respond. And I see this in church councils and elder boards as much as I see it in the rest of the world, sadly. It's still this kind of atheism of it's all up to us. And we do have a place of response. There is something that God is calling us to do because he wants to partner us, partner with us in this work. But the order is what's important. And so, you know, just like um, he says, Jesus says, you know, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you. Like there's this resting and then there's this responding. And so I put it, instead of just respond, 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 the, the rhythm is is rest, receive, respond, 
And the resting might be go on sabbatical for six weeks, or it might be just in this moment of crisis, which I know this is big with, with what you write about as well. To, to be this non-anxious presence means to disengage for just a second, to remember, oh, there is a God who is beyond me, who is carrying this church, who is carrying this home, who is carrying this world, who cares about it more than I do, who wants to uh, invite me into it and, and give me a part to play. And so when we when we rest in him, it's not just it, it includes taking time off in the usual sense of rest, but it could just be a prayer, it could just be a moment or a breath. And every single time that I've been in elders meeting where it's really stressful and we just really cannot see a way forward and someone says, Can we just stop and pray? Yeah. Read a passage of scripture, something always breaks in. Something always changes. It may not be and, and we have to rest even from our agenda and from what, what it is we want God to give us in that moment to receive what he actually brings, which may just be, it doesn't have to happen today, you know, or God is holding us, or it might be a memory of a time in the past where he has provided in an unexpected way, or it might actually be the answer that we're looking for that comes in that moment. Um, and then we have a response out of what we've actually received from from God in that place. But it's very hard to get out of our habit of desperately striving in our own strength. And I actually just. Uh, Maybe I'll, there's an image that's, that's coming to mind that I know your listeners can't see, but maybe I can share a picture of it with you um, if you want to add it to the show notes. But um, I think what I'd prefer to do is just enjoy it for myself and withhold it. From okay, well, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, so it's, it's an image that I drew last Sunday for my church because um, we were reading the passage from Psalm 1 about the tree that is planted by a river. And it's a it's a, it's an image that's throughout all of Scripture. We have it in the Garden of Eden. We have it in Jeremiah. We have it um, in the Psalms. We have it in um, the garden at, or in the city at the end in Revelation of this, this um, tree that is planted and drawing from the river and um, whose leaves are always green and whose fruit it bears. All, by the time we get to Revelation, it's bearing all different kinds of fruit all year round for the healing of the nations. Like there's this beautiful thing that is that is drawing from the river of God. And so I drew kind of the opposite of that. Or if you could imagine a tree that its roots come back into itself and its branches come back into itself, that is seeing itself as the source of it, of everything it needs. And um, it's a closed system, you know, and it's very sad, actually. It's kind of beautiful and poignant and sad at the same time. But a tree would never do that. And if it did, we know it wouldn't live very long and it certainly wouldn't bear fruit. Um, and so it's the risk of reaching down, of reaching outside of ourselves, of setting down those roots and, and seeking something beyond ourselves, of setting out those branches, reaching out beyond ourselves that that the risk of that reaching out is also what allows us to be to be flourishing, to be bearing fruit, and to be even you know sending seeds out into the world, making shade for other creatures, making branches for other nests to be built. Um, and so I I think if we're honest, there's a kind of functional atheism at work in us that is I will look to myself for everything that I need, even for this thing that God has called me to. We still sometimes do we do things in God's name, but not in God's power, and so. Um, what does it look like to actually really stretch ourselves and to be able to grow those capacities that that recognize those those instincts and those habits and postures in ourselves and and stop to say, 
uh, different postures needed here. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you've, you've said a lot just then that the whole vision of Jesus saying my yoke is easy. I think there's a lot of faith leaders who, if they were honest, would say it sure doesn't feel easy. It yeah. feels like a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, and you, you really are inviting us to an awareness that I just think none of us really have on a regular basis. Like as I was listening to you talk about uh, being in an elders meeting and pausing to pray or hear the word, what was going through my mind, Mandy, was oftentimes the problem is there that I've actually disconnected from myself. That I, I have a way of believing about Christianity that I should be selfless and I've misinterpreted that to mean to be unaware of what's going on in me. Mm. You know, even before we hit record, I was just catching up on the intensity of my life right now with, with leadership transition and everything. And I, I don't quite know what I feel. Mm -hmm. um, what are a couple of techniques that you use? Like, like you've described yourself as having all these feelings. Mm. You're kind of surrounded by your feelings. What are one or two techniques you use to help locate how you're doing in any given moment? Mm, wow. Yeah, I'm always overwhelmed. And the problem is I have really good instincts, but they don't usually come in the form of words right away. Mm. And so, um, I mean, on a personal level, oftentimes that means creating something out of the emotion and then I can describe, so making art or um, oftentimes like I've been doing collage so that I, I make something out of the emotion. I let the emotion take on another form that's not necessarily verbal and then I can describe the picture to you and that helps me then figure out words. So on a personal level, that's that's often super-duper helpful. I think on a foundational level, and this is where the Vulnerable Pastor book came from too, is is trusting, and maybe this is because I'm a nine on the Enneagram, like trusting that all things are one, actually. We can't see how they are one. But all things are one. And uh, actually, I think even deeper than that, it's come from the wrestling that I had to do over being feeling called to ministry as a woman in a context that doesn't ordain women, having to trust. Like at the moment, it seems like the God in my heart, the God in my congregation or my denomination, the God in the Bible, the God in the world, they're all different gods right now, you know. But to choose to say, I have to believe that it, if, if it is God who is calling me to ministry, that he is also the God of the church and he is the God of opening doors and, and he can provide an opportunity for me even if I can't see it right now. And he can even provide a way for me to understand how scripture is at peace with what I'm sensing from him right now. And so I think to come back to your question, we often feel like we, we have to be ashamed of our emotions or that we have to override them. And I do think somebody like me has to sometimes remember, yes, emotions are important and we have to listen to them, but they are not the whole story. But at the same time, they are part of the story and they do need a hearing. And there is often truth in emotion. So even if it can't be expressed in uh, an, a logical statement yet, there's something that we need to listen to in that emotion, trusting that it might actually be the breakthrough. It might actually bring something to the surface that after we figured out what on earth was going on, it's the moment of breakthrough. Something isn't working if we're having a really strong negative emotion right now and there may be something really powerful and sacred that will bring something to the surface, even if it's going to be messy while we, while we try to figure that out. So being present to those things and being present to one another and trusting that right now, even if we can't understand how all these things come together, that they, they are all a part of of the truth of reality that is 
that is God and that we are a part of as well. Yeah, it's a lesson I think I'm slowly learning is just to take seriously my emotions. Like I tend to be pretty driven um, getting in the do-do-do. The, the brain on the stick is definitely all the activity on the, on the legs is, is me. And it's interesting. I, I love how you said there's always truth in our emotions because anytime I'm disconnected from myself, I'm not a safe person. Mm. Like at the end of the day, I'm mm. reactive. I'm certainly disconnected from God. Mm. What, what's been surprising to me is if I want to connect to God, sometimes I have to first connect to myself. Mm. And that seems counterintuitive to a Christian yes. leader, I think. Well, that's that's really I think that's hitting the nail on the head for some things right now for our this moment because um we have heard so much, like you say, that to seek God is a selfless move. Yeah. But um so that means we then end up looking for God outside of ourselves, which is, is a part of the the call. But if the Holy Spirit is in our very bodies, then there is something, in a way, I think we would prefer the comfort of God just being out there. It's actually kind of icky or a little too close for comfort to think, yeah. and he's also right here. Yeah. And um, where is the passage? Is it in Hebrews? Oh, no, it might be in, um, I think it's in Second Corinthians, Corinthians, where Paul's talking about we have this treasure in jars of clay. Mm -hmm. um, before yeah. that, he's talking about Moses and Moses, you know, we, we would all think like, that's amazing. Moses got to see God and Moses got to have these like tangible tablets in his hand. And that sounds really great to us. That was really real. And yet the passage is actually talking about how Moses, sure, he came down from the mountain with tangible tablets and his face was glowing, but the, from the presence of God, but the, but that glow faded. He had to have a veil over his face to show that so that people wouldn't see the, the radiance fading. And where are the tablets now, you know? And then he says, but we have the very spirit of God in our very selves and it is an unfading treasure. It's never to pass away. And in a way that's beautiful to think that the very presence of God is not this mountaintop moment that one guy got to have thousands of years ago, but this but this experience of the very the very living, breathing creator of all existence wanting to wanting to be in in our very bodies that i think we are his happy place like to to just be in us in that way and yet as much as that sounds wonderful at the same time it's it's incredibly intimate and it's incredibly risky and vulnerable to think ooh in this ordinary life in this messy heart you know in this broken spirit really you want to be there you know but um, that's the story of, of Jesus, that, that God stepped into human form and walked around among us and, and that Jesus said, you will do more than I can do because you will have the Spirit. And that is not to say that every emotion that we have is directly God's will or God's saying something, but I, I do think that part of our healing and wholeness will come from, from understanding that that Spirit in us is engaging with our instincts, with our bodies, with our sensory experience, with our emotions, with our relational desire to engage with others, with our intellect. And whatever it means to be human is a place where God wants to dwell. And uh, I think Jesus was actually more comfortable being human than, than we are, that we are, we are just not really always comfortable knowing how to let God dwell in all those parts of ourselves. 
Yeah, you know, I, I was raised outside the church and I became a follower of Christ when I was 14. I don't think I experienced the unconditional love of Christ till I was 21. Mm. Um, I, I still remember it. And I think the way I know it is because of how painful it was before it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Like the journey to being enveloped in the love of God, I think the way you talk about being adultish, that was the problem. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was control, it was resistance, it was protect, protective layers around my heart. Mm -hmm. And I, I think when you said kind of the, the freakish idea that God is in us and that it's, it wigs us out a bit, I think it is because being fully known and fully seen, just we don't fundamentally believe that means we're then therefore fully loved. Mm. It, it, I think it means we're fully threatened mm, at first. Mm, mm -hmm. There's yeah. no question there, but I'm going to leave that as a hanging chad between us if there's <laughs> anything you want to say. <laughs> I would just say amen to that. Yeah. Well, Mandy, while you're amening, let me read you a quote from G.K. Chesterton. I blame you because you brought him up first. <laughs> um, I think in all my years of preaching, this is my all-time favorite quote. I think I already of, know what it's going to be. Yeah, okay. Well, I'd, I'd like to read it and get your reaction to it. Really what's going on is if my congregation was listening right now, they'd say, oh, he just looks for any excuse to share this quote. Like that's really... <laughs> but it would just be neat to... Um, Get your take on it. So here it is, Chesterton. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. The grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning... Do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and never gets tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. But we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Mm. Amazing. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, what there. else can you say? I think, <laughs> I think I was really, I was really helped. It was really helpful to find that quote again, uh, in some of the journey that I write about in my book, because, um, I had sensed, you know, the story begins with going on a sabbatical and saying, well, what am I supposed to do with myself for eight weeks? My family's still doing their work in school. And, um, I felt like God say, you can, you can be like a child and you can eat what you want and you can go where you like and you can wear your favorite clothes and you can sleep when you need to sleep and dance when you need to dance and cry when you need to cry. And I was like, that sounds great for eight weeks. But what I think I thought the invitation was, that's a very strange sentence. In the beginning, I thought the invitation was that God was saying, I'll run the world and the church for you for a little while. You go off and have fun. See you when you get back, you know. What was so remarkable to me was to find God already there at play in his creation. And the more that I, the more that I stepped into it, the more that I saw he was delighting in his creation constantly and inviting us to join him in that. And yes, we need to get back to doing stuff and being productive and everything, but we come back with a different imagination. Like my eyes are different eyes and my heart is a different heart when I have 
when I have seen from God's perspective. And I think this is what Jesus says when he says, consider the lilies and consider the birds, which sounds kind of like a hallmark sentiment, you know, sounds kind of cheesy. But he's, he says, I think, I think he's saying like, the kingdom is already flourishing in so many ways in the world. And the birds are just joining with it. And the, the plants are just joining with it. And, and uh, a hawk that's soaring overhead, looking for a mouse to catch. It might be hungry, but it's not desperate. It's not striving. It's just looking. It's just feeling the current of wind under its wings and riding it and pursuing and, and trusting there will be what it needs today. And um, it doesn't care about all the stuff we're reading in the headlines and it doesn't know about all of the things that seem so important in my life. And um, while it feels like the opposite of what I need to do when there's something really important that's pressing and some sermon that needs to be written or some decision that needs to be made, what what my spirit most needs is to is to be in that place with that bird for a little while. And when I come back to the world, I just have a different perspective, which is interesting because it's it's, I mean, differentiation is kind of built into our spiritual walk, you know, that God brings us into himself and gives us his vision of things and sends us back into contexts to bring that vision. And so, yeah, I, and I, and I was so grateful to find other people like Thomas Merton who were saying similar kinds of things. So can I, can I play quote ping pong with you? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm this a is, fan of that. This is my, um, I, I would love to get G.K. Chesterton and Thomas Merton in a room and have them talk about these things together. Um, and he says, uh, this, this is something, I think the pace of this even is like a poem that just slows my heart into this place. Like I cannot read this without actually it, it drawing me into the, the beauty of the words in themselves draw me into that space. So he says, What is serious to men is often very trivial in the sight of God. What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. At any rate, the Lord plays and diverts himself in the garden of his creation. And if we could let go of our own obsession with what we think is the meaning of it all, we might be able to hear his call and follow him in his mysterious cosmic dance. We do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing. When we are alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our own hearts, at such times the awakening, the turning inside out of all values, the newness, the emptiness and the purity of vision that make themselves evident provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. The more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it does not matter much, because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or stain the joy of the cosmic dance which is always there. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is in the midst of us, for it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. Yet the fact remains 
that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our awful solemnity to the winds, and join in the general dance. Well, Mandy, um, you know, you've been on this show before. You're one of my dear returning guests. And I got to confess, I was really surprised that the gauntlet of anxiety questions intimidated you so much, you decided to travel 10,000 miles away. I mean, you can't escape it. So, Well, the first question um, is something about like, what kind of leadership situations make you anxious? And my first thought was like, this gauntlet right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's my goal. yeah, having to okay. answer questions quickly on the spot is is kind of usually the thing that brings anxiety for me. So go far away. Well, I'm, I'm going to up the pressure a little because Chris really just sends those questions ahead of time as kind of a false sense of security. I usually just uh, <laughs> riff on the fly. Okay. Um, yeah. So so let's let's start with this one, Mandy. I'm exploring right now the gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. In a lot of ways, your book is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, one of the keenest gaps was the love of God. I believed in it. I proclaimed it. I didn't experience it for a long time. Um, what would be a gap for you that you grapple with, uh, something you believe about God that you struggle to encounter? Mm, absolutely. Um, I think that God's grace really is enough, as he said to Paul, um, as I was reading that passage one time, I just I felt like the thorn in my flesh is my own personality, mm. <laughs> my um, my messiness, and my um, I guess it's kind of uh, a deep thinking, feeling everything that over time can be a great wealth because it allows me to bring together ideas and and have new insights, but it takes a really long time and a lot of crying and a lot of journaling and a lot of talking before I get to that place. And in the meantime, I'm trying to lead something. And that can be really confusing for people, I think. And um, I think I've read, I'm an INFJ on the um, Myers-Briggs, and I think there's like 2% of the population who are INFJs. It's the least common. And I feel that. Like I just feel strange a lot of the time. And so... um, People have told me I'm a bit too much because I'm just not in a like loud talkative way, but in a like, you know, ask me as I, how I am on certain days and you suddenly just get a lot (laughs) of emotion, you know? And, um, and so I think the thought that, um, even in this personality, even in this, what feels like a really messy life that doesn't like mess, like some people love mess, (laughs) I don't love mess, but I feel like I'm in it all the time. And um, so to trust that God's grace is sufficient to do what he, um, oh, I mean, it's hard to talk about, to do what he calls me to do, um, even though I would like it to be much less personal and much less um, messy, um, to trust that, um, that, 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 I guess he's doing something in me even as he's doing something through me. And um, that's really 
it's really uncomfortable. It's excruciating as an introvert, you know, to, um, to be, um, in that process kind of publicly. And of course, you know, to be always trying to think about how to make sure that you're doing it in a healthy way. That's not putting your junk on everybody else, but to just be honest about, about what's really happening in your life and what God's really doing and trust that somehow, and I've seen it happen, but to trust that somehow God can, can bring about life, not just for me, but for the people that I am leading. It's a big stretch of my faith. Mm. Yeah. You know, Mandy, I, I do a lot of work with men and women on the inner critic, the the story we tell ourselves and the voice in our head. And um, I've, I've heard from almost every woman I work with the dual inner critic message, you're not enough, you're too much. <laughs> like both of them. Yeah. Um, does that bounce around in your head oh, as well? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah. I sometimes imagine, you know, if you could just imagine like, a gingerbread man type image, like a cookie cutter shape of a person as like the identity of who you actually are. And then imagine if you had a little gingerbread cookie unbaked on the countertop and then you just had this like a a square cookie cutter that you just pressed down into it, that some parts of that gingerbread person would be stuck outside and would be cut off and other places there would be big gaps where there was no cookie inside the square you know, where that person's, the shape of a little person was not filling the square. And this, you know, the square is this ideal of, of what a person should be or what a leader should be, that we feel both the pain of what's getting cut off, that that's, you know, those emotions are not welcome. You're a leader. You're not supposed to be an emotional being. So cut that piece of you off. Or leaders are supposed to be very articulate and be able to answer questions quickly. And so there's a, there's a gap in you you know, in my case, that's, that's one that I feel very, very much is there's something missing in you as well. That doesn't fill up this, this space. And it's really painful for us, regardless of what gender we are, I think. But, um, oftentimes the model that we're being compared to is not one that was made for us or by us or, you know, with our personality or our gender in mind. And so, um, it's, it's an unkind assessment that we all, I think, feel. Yeah. I think I'm spending a lot of my time nowadays convincing leaders that all God ever wanted was for them to be exactly human-sized. What would be a a helpful tool that you reach for to remember that being exactly human is exactly what God wants? Yeah. I think it's really helpful to to name what's going on. I often sense something really uncomfortable in leadership and in relationships that I feel like I, I just have to respond to or react to and to instead have just that breath, that moment, which I think I had as an adult, as a parent, I was better at this than I am as just a person and a leader to just say, here's a dynamic that I see happening here. Let's name that. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to react to it. Let's just name, this is really hard right now. <laughs> or, or uh, we need some time. Or, you know, to even name, like, if somebody is critiquing or accusing me, my first response is to just react to it, but to stop and say, hang on a second, let's just talk about the tone here. Let's change the tone of this conversation for a second. Just to to give out, to give everybody in the room a breath. And I read, I'm trying to remember who it was, I think it might have been Peter Steinke, who also does some stuff with, um, you know, family systems. 
And he says, the person who can name reality without casting blame will emerge as the leader. And I, I think that's a, a value for me that I think is really high. Of, um, and, and oftentimes when you're able to do that, it's a gift to everyone in the room, especially if you do it without casting blame. There have been times when I've, when I've had to be in that, had that opportunity with, with talking about gender where instead of just reacting to the pain in the room to just stop and, and name like, oh, can we just take a breath? This is, this is painful. This is hard. We don't understand one another right now. God has created each of us in the bodies and with the genders that we have. And there must be a way forward. Let's just take a breath, you know. Mm. Um, I'm not always good at it, especially when I'm really close to the crisis, but um, that seems to be helpful when it happens. Yeah. And the final question, uh, when recently in your life have you felt most fully and completely loved? I think it's in moments where I don't have to explain myself to people where they just see, they just get me. And when someone else can help me do the work that I'm always doing and trying to understand what's going on in me and someone else can say, I see it and it's okay. And, you know, maybe this is what you need right now instead of me feeling the pressure to explain myself and do all the work myself. Because I feel like I do a lot of that work for other people, kind of maybe it's not always healthy, but like trying to understand them and trying to, trying to give them space and trying to it's it's a kind of a hospitality in your own heart I think to like to just let them be in a mess for a little bit and I really need spaces like that and recently I was just not having a great day and you know when things are hard in your work it's really tempting to just dig in deeper and chain yourself to your desk and not step up until you've fixed all the problems and um, my husband Jamie just said I think you need a bike ride <laughs> and he actually put aside his work and, and he had to stay up late that night to get his work done to get on the tandem. We have a tandem, which is like, as soon as I'd sit on that thing, I just feel like I'm on vacation right away. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's just so good. And it makes me happy. It just makes me smile to just sit on that thing. And, um, it might help that he's a really good cyclist and he's much stronger than me. And, and I'm just like, on on for the ride really so we can go really fast much faster than i can go on my own bike um and uh go much further than i could go on my own bike so um when i think when when someone just has space for where i am even if it's messy and i can't explain it and and i have to trust that that is a tiny glimpse of how god sees sees us and loves us too Mandy Smith uh, is the author of several works. The most recent is Unfettered. There are a handful of, I think, books and thinkers that are helping us navigate COVID so to, to force us to not go back to the way things were. It's not like we loved it before, let's be honest. Mm. Mandy's one of them. So, Mandy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you for, for making the time. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 